and we're live. The first podcast of the Duran Show. It's the first day of many epic days. Uh, so three brothers were missing one. This was supposed to be four, but we'll get the we'll get the next one in shortly. So uh, let's do some introductions. Myers, why don't you lead us off? All right. Uh, how's it going? My name's Myers. I'm over here in North Carolina. Recently just got into Lord of the Rings a couple months ago. I've got a couple armies there. Obviously grew up in West Coast, Washington. Uh, traveled around a little bit and then kind of got re-pushed into this. Actually, I kind of got into the, the hobby really because you guys kept talking about it and it made me anxious to check it out. So uh, it's fun. The benefit of peer pressure in hobbies. <laughs> a real conversion. Yeah. Yeah. So here I am. Uh, pretty excited to do this podcast because there will be as much information for me as everybody else listening. So, yeah. Sweet. Awesome. So I'll go next. So uh, my name's Matt. Again, one of the four brothers. Um, I got into Middle Earth SVG right after the reboot with the latest edition of the rules. That was actually the first tabletop game I've ever played. Um, so through peer pressure, because Marcus and Mitchell, the brother that's not on, have been playing it. What, Marcus? You've been playing ever since it came out, right? 2002 with the Fellowship? Not, not, not the Fellowship. I think Mitchell and I started in the Two Towers version. Ah, all right. Well, anyway, so uh, I think right around Thanksgiving 2018, I bought the uh, starter box set and uh, kind of went in insane with it, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> ever since. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Understatement hooked, of the year. Hooked, addicted, just the whole aspect of modeling, painting, social games, competitive play. It's just been unbelievable. I can't believe it took me this long to find it. But yeah, I've been collecting armies like crazy. Painting like crazy, probably too much for health, but anyways, love it. Um, so certainly not a veteran, but currently live down in the south area of the United States, but from the west coast as well. Right on, right on. And then, yeah, I'm Marcus. Uh, kind of, so the other, the fourth brother is not here. We started back in the Two Towers edition, so I don't even remember what year that was, but it was a long time ago. Uh, played a lot. Didn't really get into the hobby side of things. It was more just playing the the tabletop game for the, the sake of it had a pretty good group um went through middle school and high school but then died off and stopped playing for what five or six or seven years um and then got back into it with the latest release of the middle earth strategy battle game edition which was what sometime in 2018 so it's kind of rebooted and i got to i lost all my models i had a pretty big collection um pretty cool collection lost them all so i had to restart and it's just been a, it's been a blast rebuilding some armies that i used to have building some new armies that i never had and definitely getting into more of the hobby side of things like i never used to do anything other than just put super glue on it and prime it and that was what i did so <laughs> um yeah it's been pretty fun so uh yeah it's a little bit about us maybe like a little bit of like what we want to see i guess we're doing the podcast, obviously, because it's pretty unique that we have a bunch of brothers playing the same game. Um, pretty wide range of uh, experience in terms of playing, in terms of hobbying. Uh, Myers, you're only in, in it for a couple months. Matt, you've only been in it for a little bit, but you're like crazy into the hobby side of it. And you just kind of jumped all in and 
emphasis is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just just a really unique opportunity to to sit down and talk about the game, talk about the hobby, talk about a lot of random questions, rules questions, competitive list builds. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a fun little time, I think. Anything you guys want to add? No, I think it's it's something we've talked about doing for such a long time, but um, in the crazy state of the world right now, it's a perfect time to get it started. And I feel like, you know, the game is in such a good spot. And obviously I'm new, so, you know, Marcus, you can roll your eyes because I don't have the perspective you do. But the game feels like it's in such a great spot. There's great community support. There's, I mean, GW is doing so many good things. And there's great people putting out content Um you know, there's there's so many great podcasts and YouTube shows, but it just feels like there's room for more because, I mean, there, there's so much time while you're modeling and painting that it just feels like maybe a little perspective of a newer player to the game talking about things that maybe kerfuffle me and versus, you know, someone with your experience. It just, just feels like it'd be a fun niche that maybe otherwise wouldn't be represented right now in the current meta of the middle or strategy battle game media content absolutely yeah I, I think i speak for everybody when i say i think i'm i'm almost up to date with all of my sbg content while i'm painting or doing random stuff either commuting to or from work um there needs to be more there's, there's not enough hours in the day yeah i find myself re-listening to episodes of Entmoot and the Green Dragon all the time thinking, man, I wish there'd be a new one that came out of her hair. Yeah. So know, why are they doing this whole time? Just listening to Lord of the Rings while you're painting. And all of a sudden, oh, yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, so I guess we can dive right in. We've got, we've got a couple uh So, Marcus, you want to kind of walk them to... through, like, all the segments before we go in so they kind of know the general theme, or what do you think? Yeah, no, that sounds like a good idea. So, yeah, on that point, we tried to think up a few segments, and obviously this will probably be an evolving process, but this is what we kind of came up with um, based on what we're into right now. So we've got a a list of, what, six segments, it looks like. Um, obviously, it'll, it'll vary in range, depending on kind of what we highlight every time. But one is going to be, we're gonna, we tried to name them all, come up with a cool name for all of them. One's going to be Celebrimbor's Forge, and that's going to really focus on what we're up to on the hobby side of things, if there's any weird projects that we're working on or, or new projects that we're trying to, to, to finish up. Um, we've got one called the Mustering of the Orhurum, and this is going to be a really basic army review segment where we kind of go through, we'll have a different theme or highlight, but look at a different faction that we're either trying to build master or maybe thinking about getting into i know everybody's talking about buying new armies and there's been so many model releases and new legendary legion options there's just a crazy amount of stuff to get through uh, we've got one we <laughs> guidance from the valar uh things we've run into while we're playing the game where we wish it would either have a clarification or a faq or a rule that just makes you really scratch your head not really sure what it's about or maybe how it was intended to be to used to be used uh we've got another one disturber of the peace and this is a segment really focused on what type of 
things have you run into while you're actually playing a game with another another player that maybe not is not in the rules or maybe is in the rules but just made your game just so much more enjoyable like either uh, a preference or a an add-on or a house rule something like that we've got a topic for competitive play this will be pretty straightforward um if you've been to a tournament what are your thoughts on list building or what are your thoughts on playing for a long day you know spend a lot of time there and then a last section which is this one's still evolving but it's uh mainly focused on newer players ask a newbie like what is something that you had a question about either in terms of building an army, getting into the getting into the game, uh, playing a game, or something that you're really um, looking forward to, like playing in a, a tournament or playing uh, scenario play, whatever it may be. So, that's and I think of, of, of all the topics, I think that's the one that I'm kind of the most excited for because, like, you play a lot of games, you kind of get used to things you've heard, and you you maybe stop reading the rules as written. Because maybe you've seen the FAQs, maybe you've heard someone say something that was that was echoed by three other players. So you just start to accept it as truth. And so with Myers having just recently finished his first army, um, it's really refreshing to hear someone who says, "No, actually, if you read the rule, this is what it says." And that like sometimes is such a big departure from what I have stored in my head as. That's true. So, Myers, that's going to be an awesome segment, and you'll be the star of that one until all of a sudden you're not a noob anymore. But I mean, that's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, I'll have my time with guys. No, that's a, that's a good call-out. Yeah, unless there's any other call-outs, let's jump into the first segment, guys. This will give me cred. Straight cred. All right, Killer Brimbor's Forge. Uh, this is our hobby section. So what are we... Uh, I guess I'll throw out the general question. What are we all working on right now in terms of the hobby? What models are you assembling, painting? Myers, why don't we start with you? You said start with me? Yeah. All right, so um, just recently I have two factions right now and then one that I'm currently drawing up. I haven't purchased it yet. They're both good armies. Um, I decided to get a Legendary Legion army. And just to kind of break that down, um, we have – it's the Grey Company. So that's obviously the Army of the Dead. And then you have the Three Hunters, which is Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. Um, that was pretty much – I just bought it because I thought they looked cool. And then come to find out, they actually are really good. So I've, I've enjoyed playing with that. <laughs> uh, problems. Yeah. And so, you're, talking about, you're talking about Return of the King, right? Not the yes, Grey Company? Thank you. Okay. Yeah, so that's Legendary Legion. So we get, I mean, just some great things right off the bat, like Aragorn. Anytime you can get his crazy good Endural sword for free, uh, that's just a ridiculous bonus. So that, I love that army. It's fun to play with. They just shred low courage enemies. Um, and then the second army that I've been playing, I just finished painting all. Oh, but Myers, before you gloss over that, you have the coolest theme for the Return of the King Legendary Legion. I yeah, can't get believe into I haven't seen it. You have to tell everybody how you're painting them because it is such a sick crossover. Yeah. Oh, thank actually, actually, good point. So painting Army of the Dead, everyone tries to do their own original. I ended up happened to be finishing up Season 8 of Game of Thrones when I ordered this army. So... 
uh, I was like, hey, I could kind of take a spin on it, and I painted the Army of the Dead as White Walkers. So uh, kind of just a dirty, dirty, darkish clothes with a snow base, and then obviously that got that blue kind of spectral skin. So I appreciate it. it took me a little while. Um, thanks to that varnish paint, it kind of made them, I think they're turning out pretty cool looking. So you have never seen Aragorn in his true glory until you've seen him with <laughs> blue skin channeling the Night King. It is, it is Gimli awesome. too. Gimli's like They're a little so three or four foot just blue ghost. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I just I can't believe we haven't seen that anywhere. And I mean, if anybody listening has already done it, I'd love to see photos. We'll put up like our our Facebook info so we can see photos from someone hopefully. Um, but man, the theme is just awesome and it works so well. I appreciate the snow yeah. base too. I saw a couple of pictures of your snow bases. Those are pretty epic. Oh, speaking yeah. of that, what did you use for your snow base, Myers? I didn't, I mean, meant to ask you that. So ordered off of, uh, Forge World. I went and got, they just have those textured paints. It's the Valhalla and Blizzard. Oh, and so okay. It pretty much just sets you up. You just apply it, let it dry and, uh, Really good. I was kind of nervous buying it. Uh, just because is it is it like the normal texture where you have to like paint the mud over? Because I've only ever used the mud texture. So the mud, I didn't honestly have to do anything with the snow other than I put some grass on there and then covered it with snow. So it looks like, you know, obviously you have texture underneath and it just snowed on top of it. But uh, yeah, I, honestly, it's it's you just pull it right out of the bottle and it's it's good to go. So, yeah, I was kind of nervous about painting the heroes that way, too, because usually you want the heroes to pop out. But now that I did it, looking back, I, I love it. <laughs> That's just it'll definitely be – it'll be an eye popper on a table for sure. Absolutely. Yep. And, and uh, moving on to the second army I have, I have the uh, Dwarves of Erebor, so the army of Thror, going back to the Hobbit. And so – Such a great army. That is my favorite army in, I think, out of the whole Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth era, especially not not even just the Hobbit. Um, I personally just love the dwarves. I've been wanting to get into them. And then what better way to do it than Thror, Thrain, and Dane Ironfoot. So <laughs> yeah, that's like the trifecta of people I never want to play against. Yeah, so I went to uh, Thror and Thrain. Obviously, I have... Uh, I just bought a box of Grim Hammers, and then I bought an Iron Foot and a set of a box set of the Iron Hills Warriors. And so that's like my 800 point list. Um, anxious to play it out. That's my Nova list that I put together. Uh, entered in. That'll be my first tournament. Pretty excited about that. I'm trying to get some some practice games in. But uh, yeah, that's the one I'm really excited about. Just finished up painting them, so they're ready to go. Sweet, man. What was your theme for painting them? Did you have like any, uh, like the White Walkers, anything unusual or was it pretty straightforward? Um, yeah, so I kind of like to do a more, like the way I imagine the dwarves when they fight, obviously they're shorter. So a lot of what they're, they're going to be in the mud and in the ground a lot more. So the way I painted them, they're kind of, um, I imagine when I fight with those armies, instead of the Iron Hills coming down to the Erebor, uh, it's the other way around. So I kind of have the scenery up in the hills, kind of a mossy, wet 
swampland, not a swamp, but kind of just wet and moist. So a lot of mud on the armor. It's doled off. Yeah. So it kind of gives it that actual war scene look, because that's how it would be. I'm almost imagining like the movie, The Two Towers, when they're at Helm's Deep fighting and it starts raining, how it turns into a mud pit. But instead of Urukai and elves and men, it's like just dwarves and whoever they're fighting. Are you are you done with both armies? Or are you still in progress with anything? Um. So the the legendary legion of the dead. I have probably like twenty or thirty models to paint left on that. The dwarves are completely finished though. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm finishing that. I'm looking to get into some serpent horde, but I imagine we'll be talking more about that later. Awesome. So. Matt, what what armies are you working on? Uh, so what, right what now, hobby projects. So I'll talk about what I just finished up. Um, so I recently finished. It was my army plan for Adepticon. Um, unfortunately, that won't see the light of day. But uh, I finished up a display board and my army and the army was a uh, i called it the the alliance under the mountain but it was army of thror allied with allied with iron hills uh almost an exact match to what myers just said um uh, it was pretty cool um it was your typical build out of that but it was dane and Murn and drar leading an assortment of dwarves and then uh on the army of thror side i had thror leading 17 guardians of the king with just an warrior of airborne to make up his 18th pretty cool army pretty cool display board i was happy with that but once that was put into the books and completed um i was trying to go back and forth and decide i have two new armies that i was getting ready to start i had lake town and the corsairs of umbar um still in the box but as i was looking at my shelf um the very first army I ever owned, as I mentioned earlier, was the box set. And I had the Rohan force from there, um, which comes with just the standard 12 uh, riders of Rohan with their dismounts and Theoden. And when I first got started, I didn't know much about the game. I didn't take the time to read the rules before I started just buying models. So I like bought every Rohan hero I could find. (laughs) You know, I, I, I I kept looking at them and, you know, I bought like five things of paint and one wash from GW and I had one giant paintbrush and the quality just was abysmal. And so I, I wanted to take that on and through time, I don't know how, but Marcus, I think I had bought your Rohan from your starter box set. Yeah. So I yeah. had a, another 12 riders and then I had won six more riders and then I had picked up six Royal Guard with their mounts and dismounts and, a whole other assortment of heroes. So all told, I think I've got like 80 some Rohan models and I'm just, it just bugs me that they were unfinished and some of the horses were done. Some of the, some of the stuff was primed. And so I told myself, I will not paint anything else until Rohan is complete. So I'm knee deep in that. And I'll tell you the last probably five days, I have not done anything but paint. Uh, so <laughs> you know the, the, the image i just fumes. got in my mind it's not five days it's like the spongebob three hours later <laughs> all 80 <laughs> models are done <laughs> you, yeah, you literally painted an 80 model model 80 model army in like two days 
Yeah, it's crazy. I uh, I definitely sacrificed the quality for the quantity, but it it looks pretty good on the table. So, um, I've only got fifty models left to go, and those are I mean they're all to the point where the base coat is on, the shading is done. Um, so it's just right now it's a matter of edge highlighting, bringing back some of the color that goes away when you shade, and putting the final touches on the bases, and then I'll have a. Uh, Gosh, I haven't added it up, but I think I've probably got about 2,800 to 3,000 points of Rohan. So, Holy cow. Yeah, it'll be pretty cool to see. I'm looking forward to just getting one picture with like everything on the table. Epic. So not to take away from that unbelievable feat um, in and of itself, but I want to go back. You said the, the dwarf, the dwarf army you were preparing for Adepticon. You were talking about display board. You kind of glossed over that. I saw some pictures of that. Can you tell us in detail kind of what you were doing in terms of the spacing on the models that tied into your actual display board? Because that's something I've never done. I've never built a display board. It seems super intimidating to me, uh, super hard, but you've been cranking those out lately. So it'd be kind of fun to hear about that. Yeah, I think it's just kind of fun to like take a theme and, you know, for me, I'm not sure about everybody else, but I kind of imagine like when I start building my army like where is this army going to fight and so like with my army of thror i had them envisioned like under the mountain and you know one of my favorite visuals from the hobbit is that green marble floor anyway so the army of thror is all on like green marble floors with some rocks i kind of envisioned it wasn't all perfectly finished there was some rocks sticking up so that's on their bases and then the Iron Hills, the exact opposite. They were they were out in the dirt, uh, tumbleweeds, dead grass type of build. So when I did the display board, one of the cool things, I'm not sure if everybody's ever heard of Table War, but Table War sells like amazing traveling cases. Um, and the cool thing about it is they build these diorama boards that will fit in the travel case. And so you go buy little... 25 millimeter and 40 millimeter whatever size you need holes that you can glue onto the board so you can build a display board and then you just put in the right amount of rings for however many models and you base around it so it matches the base of your army so long story short my display board for adepticon on the left side it was built up to look like it was inside the halls of erebor and it was rocked in with a rock backdrop and walls made of rock, floors of green marble matching the bases. And then there was a wall separating the army of Thor from the Iron Hills. And I took a dwarven statue and I kind of made that look to be bronze. And I had it separating the two armies, kind of looking like the gates of Erebor. And then outside was the Iron Hills dwarves. So the theme of the board was kind of like... Uh, the army's rallying at Erebor before everybody leaves to go to battle. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly fairly new at the hobby, but it was fun. I'm, I'm happy with the results. Uh, certainly see a lot better craftsmen, but it was cool. And I really enjoyed doing it, which I think is kind of the whole point. Well, yeah. And, and just even like having the courage to jump into a display board. Like, like I said, I've never done a display board. It seems super intimidating. But seeing the ones that have been have been produced lately, it just it's incredible. And yours, I did see some pictures of yours. So again, like when we are able to actually post some of this on whatever Facebook or whatever we actually end up posting it on, um, 
it's awesome. Like, did it take you forever to build or was it pretty quick? Like if you were to compare it against the time it took you to actually build the army. No, it goes pretty quick. And I'd say that occurred over the span of three weeks, but it, I was painting armies in between. So I was putting very limited time into the board itself. So I'd say the board was probably, if I told it up, probably about 12 hours of craft time, start to finish. Was it was it your first board? No, it wasn't your first board, right? Yeah, it was my third board. So, <laughs> and this... So this is kind of a funny story. My first board I ever built was for a tournament in Arkansas called uh, Merkwood something. Um, can't remember. It was, oh man, I feel bad. But it was an awesome event out in Arkansas. I met a lot of great people. Amazing terrain. Remind me sometime to talk about the Tower of Orthanc. But anyways, that was my first board. Very basic. Just kind of like a rock with a 3D printed boulder in the middle. I put it on wood board. And then my second board I actually built for Adepticon, but I have, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, I have list commitment issues. So I had originally, <laughs> I had originally built a board uh, themed around the Champions of Erebor, uh, or I guess it's Erebor Reclaimed, pardon me. And um, that was all done, and it kind of had, it was outside, and it had the Raven Hill with Thorin on a snowy mountain on ice. And then down below had the main army, uh, had Dwalim and everybody. I've converted some of the champions to be on goats. And the list was built really well. It was it was a super elite army. Um, it only had 34 models at 1,000 points. And I had been playtesting. It just played incredible. And I thought the board looked great. But, uh, well, what happened right as I finished <laughs> it? Matter of fact, the day after? Well, there's a little thing called the match play guide, uh, which completely changed the meta and, in my opinion, rendered my 34 model 1000 point army completely useless. So, with all I those went, new, like, objective based board control scenarios. Yes, which I'm not complaining because I think it was actually a great thing. But, like, I had kind of drifted to a high hero count, ultra elite, lower model count um, type of play. And I was being extremely successful in tournaments and just fun with the folks around where I live that I play with. And the, the new match play guide, adding those other scenarios, you just have to have more models. So I abandoned that and I stuck with the dwarf theme and went to Thor Iron Hills and got myself back up into the 50 model count, which, which is a lot better at the current meta now. Awesome. How about you, Marcus? What have you been working on? Man, I feel like I've been all over the place. Um, I think, so I've been playing this game, I, I forget how many years I said, we'll just say a lot of years, but something that happened just recently is I had a first. I finally finished every single model I painted and based every single model in an army. Never done ding, that before. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, it was, it was just, it was amazing. It felt really good. Um, now, truth be told, I purchased like a very strategic amount of models so it's not like i had a crazy run over i can't do like this specific list a lot of different ways but it was a lot of fun i did uh what did i do i did the kingdom of moria which is the cause of doom kind of spinoff where Balin is the leader so i did Balin and just a bunch of king's champions and cause guard and iron guard which uh, is such a cool theme i mean just the whole thought of that expedition force is awesome 
Yeah, it's like, what are they going to do to get back to get back to cause of doom? They're going to bring the biggest and the baddest. Um, no, it was a ton of fun. It, not uh, not something I've ever done before. So yeah, I painted every single model on the range. So super happy until two weeks later when my Durin model showed up. So technically now I'm back out of compliance because I have Durin and Martin um, <laughs> underpainted. But I'll get back on that. Uh, so tell well, everybody about the theme, because I thought like the level of, first of all, the level of detail in your army, I'm a model junkie. So I like, you and I got to do a tournament, what was that, about a month ago now, but that was the first time I got to see your army in person. And just the the color scheme just blew my mind. It just looked like classic dwarves, but I haven't seen that scheme. So can you talk a little bit about the scheme and what you did with the bases? Because you've always been a classic brown base guy. You departed from that, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I did, uh, thanks, I did um, a gold bronze spinoff. So basically all of the armor, I painted like a basic gold, like the Games Workshop, what they call it, Retributor Gold, but I washed it. Armor. Yeah, yeah, that one. I did a crazy heavy wash, I, the ink, the dark ink. So okay. the, the gold turns into like a little bit of a bronze style, so... There's a bunch of guys walking around in bronze armor with cha heavy chainmail, obviously. And then uh, all of their tunics, it was like the Red Guard, basically. So lots of red tunics. And then the basing was a cave floor, um, a bunch of different rubble, basically. I just tried to mix up uh, different color sands, different color rocks, and then I washed it all. So it was like a what I imagine to be at the bottom of a cave floor. So if you're fighting through like literally the halls of Moria, this is what, this is what the base would look like. And then to kind of top it all off, I'm a huge fan of red. A lot of my armies tend to sway to the color red. So the basing all, like all of the, the rim basing was red as well. So yeah, Ballin's red guard is kind of what I called it, but it, uh, just looks incredible, extremely well done. And not to take away from your creativity, but when I saw it, the first thing, do you remember in uh, Skyrim when you go down in the dwarven underground caves and you see that dwarven metal and you can pick up like components of broken wood? That's what your bronze effect looked like. It was just it was oh, so cool. Oh, yeah. I'm forgetting what they called that, but yeah, yeah, the, the Dwemir or whatever it was. Yes. Such a cool color. And like, it just immediately, as soon as I saw your armor, all that bronze just channeled that or brought that back to my mind. It was really cool. Well, I got the thanks. I appreciate that. I got the idea actually from somebody else in the Seattle group here, the Seattle base group, um, because like the Games Workshop paint range is really all that I use right now. Um, they don't have a they don't have a traditional bronze like the bronzes they have are almost like tin or copper or it's really sharp deviations from the gold base. So somebody gave me the idea of if you did like a dark, it's the dark tone army painter wash, I think it's called. So if you'd use that in conjunction with that bright gold, it turns it into the bronze. That's like the typical, I think in my mind, when I think of bronze armor, that's what I think of. So quite a departure from the golden orcs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that'll be a different, a different story for, for sure. another time. <laughs> My failed golden orc army. <laughs> we'll have, we'll have to we'll have to have a new segment that we do every once in a while about failed great ideas. <laughs> the oh, golden orcs one. will be featured. <laughs> that was so bad. <laughs> That'll be number one. 
Uh, oh. The worst eight models I've ever painted. Okay, <laughs> let's 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 drop that one there. Moving on. Um, yeah. No, that sounds that sounds super cool, guys. And again, we'll we'll have to post pictures or maybe like a little photo album of kind of what we talked about, so people can put pictures to words. Because um, honestly, Myers, your White Walkers, Matt, your display board, and and the quantity of work here that you that you pumped out, and you called it. Uh, a sacrifice of, on quality. Yeah, I disagree. I think it's awesome. So we'll have to we'll have to get this up and posted. Thank you very much. I think we'll uh, we'll probably have to start an Instagram account that matches the podcast. That seems like a cool idea. Yeah, I agree. I concur. Doctor, do you concur? I concur. <laughs> All, All right, right so we ready to go. Segment number two. Yeah, let's do it. I'm in your base, killing your dude. So mustering the Rohirrim, this is our army review segment. Uh, Matt, we're actually going to go back to you talking about an army that you're that you're building right now. And then what I imagine we'll probably we'll probably kind of do this on the fly. But if you walk us through the army, the point level, your thoughts on how it's going to play, basically they'll give Myers and I a chance to kind of ask some pointed questions about why you made certain decisions, why you included or excluded heroes. What's your play strategy? What what are you going to do, basically, if you encounter your worst nightmare? Stuff like that. So on the fly. And this could be an army that you have, an army that you're building, or the army you're trying to kind of reinvent a little bit. So, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Okay, so here's what I've got. And, you know, I'm going to put a little caveat here that, like, list building is, like, probably my favorite part of the hobby because – there's just so much nuance and you can tell a, a good builder from a average builder. So I have right now, my favorite army in theory is the dark powers of Dulcaldur. Um, I generally drift towards the evil army build um, for whatever reason. I just like playing that side. And I've got a list that right now I know is too hero heavy, but I just love the concept. And I'm building this with Nova in mind. So Nova is going to be 800 points, I believe, this year. Um, so here, let, let, let's just run right through it. Um, here is the weird thing about this list. When you think about the dark powers of Dolgaldur, what's the hero you always think about? The Necromancer. What do you think this list is missing? Are you serious? You didn't include him? I didn't. Um, oh. it, it just seems stupid to me, but... I'd like to get your guys' opinions. And everyone listening is, well, the one person listening is probably thinking, Mitchell. He's an, <laughs> yeah, he's an idiot. Like, you've got to take the Necromancer. And I agree with you, but I'm trying to do something different to be really, really cheeky. So here we go. Um, on a high point, I've, I've filled out 799 points of 800. I'll figure okay. out some place to, to put the other point. But um, I've got one, two, three four Nazgul and I've got the Keeper of the Dungeons so Warband number one uh, is Kamal the Easterling and he's leading a Warband of six Gundabad Orc Warriors with shield and six Gundabad Orc Warriors with spear no shield he's got two Hunter Orcs and he's got a Mirkwood Spider Warband number two is a slayer of men 
He's leading seven hunter orcs, just basic hunter orcs. And if you think about what I go down to, probably my favorite model in the game of just a warrior, I, I just love hunter orcs on foot. The two attacks for eight points, strength four, just crazy good, in my opinion. Little little tangent there. Warband number three, Slayer of Men number two. He's leading 12 Hunter Orcs. Warband number three. Oh, wait, we already did Warband number three. Warband number four. And this is the leader. You have the Witch King of Angmar. He's leading, again, six Gunabad Orcs with shield, six Gunabad Orcs with spear, and another Markwood Spider. And then finally, you have the Keeper of the Dungeons, and he's leading nobody. So you have oh, a single model drop. four heroes that basically can't die. Well, they die a little easier because I don't have the Necromancer and the Keeper of the Dungeon. Uh, total model count comes in. It's it's 47 models. Everything's strength Holy four. Cow. So obviously only one model with three might. Everything has strike. Three of the heroes are barely two-handed. Let's hear your thoughts. Mars, I don't know if you're like me. I just I had to scramble to try and open my Hobbit book to get to this army list. Yeah, that's ridiculous. You said 47 models at strength four, and all of your heroes have strike? Every hero has strike. Three of them are Burly two-handed. Uh, Kamal the Easterlin is two-handed without Burly. So you have four Burly heroes. Everything strength four or higher. Keeper of the Dungeons is strength five. So we can go through stats. I've got the book pulled up. If you want to ask me any questions, I'm ready. But this is obviously very weird. Now, now for those who aren't familiar with this army, the big thing about the, the Nazgul is they don't die. So they've got the unholy resurrection rule, which means if they die, they have no faith. You roll a dice, and on a three plus, they come back to life. Uh, if you're wounded with magic or elven-made weapons, you suffer a minus one to that roll. You can use might to impact it. So the huge buff that this army is always reliant on is if the necromancer is on the field, he adds plus one to that roll. So a three goes down to a two. Um, but I don't have that in this case. So obviously this army really doesn't want to face elves. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I'm... Just on first glance, I'm looking. You're basically, because you're not taking a Necromancer, and I could be wrong, you're basically negating your army bonus because the army bonus for Dolgol Dor is completely around the uh, around the Necromancer. That's all it is. So, yes, I'm no, it's it might as well be convenient allies. Man, okay. And then, really quick, while we're while we're pulling this up, can you walk us through? There's so many different profiles. You said Kamul, the Witch King, the Slayer of Men. These are not the typical ring rate profiles. These are the Dol Guldor profiles. Can you give us a quick overview on uh, special rules for each of them? It looks like each of them have a special rule, and they all have a baseline profile. Absolutely. So on the baseline profile, this applies to all nine Nazgul. Your movement six, fight five, strength four, defense six, two attacks, one wound, courage six, two might, one will, no fate. for special rules, you have Harbinger of Evil, Terror, One of Nine, Servants of Evil, and that just means that you can only have nine Nazgul. You have the Unholy Resurrection. We've already talked about that. Um, now, as far as 
of the Nazgul that I've selected, they each have special rules. So the Witch King, who's my army leader, is he has three might instead of two. So he's base profile, except he has three might. Oh, and I forgot, as far as heroic actions, if you look in the FAQ, every one of these Nazgul has strike, even though it's not listed in the main army book. Um, so Witch King, three might is his special rule. Kamal the Easterling has a two-handed mace. He is not burly, but his special rule is he has three attacks instead of two, which is pretty risky, but we can get into my strategy later of how to negate that problem, but we'll, we'll, we'll cover that later. Uh, now, the Slayer of Men, his special rule is he has a two-handed mace, and he has deadly strength, which basically... It's not burly, but he doesn't suffer a minus one penalty for a two-handed weapon. And you can have two Slayers of Men in your army, which I do. So, I guess, can you can you go back to your Let's army? Cover the did keep, you, did you, well, sorry, do you want me to cover ahead. the Keeper real quick? Yeah, yeah. Keeper coming in at move six, fight five, strength five, defense six, two attacks, two wounds, courage five, three might, three, wound, or three will, zero fate. He's got strike, strength, and challenge. He is burly, and he's got a special rule called the torture, which means you keep track of his wounds, or every time he slays a model. Um, after a while, he causes terror, and then uh, after he's killed five models, he rerolls all failed wounds. So it's kind like, like the, the best thing he, syndrome. Exactly. The best thing he could see is Goblin Town, because you know you just want to get that kill count up for him. Uh, and then, you know, he, he adds plus one to wound against anybody wearing an elven ring. All right, so you were going to ask something about the uh, the army build. Yeah, so the, the first thing, all of your heroes are Valor except for the Keeper of the Dungeon, right? So then you pick the Witch King to be your leader. Why did you pick the Witch King to be your leader versus any of the other ones? Just because he has more might? Yeah, and I mean... I'm kind of a sucker for theme. I mean, it, it would seem so silly to have a slayer of men telling the witch king what to do. So that's fair. Uh, that's fair. And with the three might, I feel like he's probably got the best opportunity to get himself out of a jam. Um, he's not a huge killer. His might is there for for strikes and and heroic moves. Um, he's two attacks. Doesn't have burly. So he's probably the one that I will be the least likely to just throw in and let them be killed quickly, hoping for a good roll on the resurrection. Got it. And then on your army list, can you remind me, I didn't hear a banner in your army. There is not one. So you're riding no banner. Maybe expand a little yeah. bit on that. Well, the theory there is, um, you know, the Gundabad orcs with shields are going to be, I'm going to be running them in. If you imagine the battle lines clashing, where I don't see myself having the advantage, I'm going to do a single goon to bad orc shielding, um, throwing two dice down. And then I've got hunter orcs with two attacks base, and I'm going to throw spear supports behind them. So you're running three attacks. I just honestly thought that the banners are not worth it um, for the points. And if I'm in a scenario where I need points for the banner, right or wrong, and I this is a little crazy. My strategy is to take some of those other ring raids, throw them into a spot where they might get a couple kills. They will likely die. And then even if I have to use my might, roll on the unholy resurrection with a burly two-handed hero, 
respawn in the army's backfield and go kill their banner. That, that unholy a... resurrection, for people who don't know what that rule is, um, if you die and you do revive, before priority, you basically move that token anywhere six inches as long as you're not in base contact. So if you like go kamikaze with a model and he dies, you have the, the likely potential of a hero respawning in, the, in your opponent's backfield, which is just an insane dynamic. Yeah, and let me let me try to put some words to this mental picture. So you basically have a one wound model where you can intentionally charge maybe two or three models because you want him to die. And then once he dies, as long as you get that three plus revive, you've got an additional six inches and you can move through models. You're basically like a ghost. Yeah, no control zones, nothing. You just as long as you can place your model on the table again you can spawn anywhere within a six-inch perimeter of where you died. That's the thought. Oh, that's crazy. And that, that's and basically like you have fly with all of your ring rates. Yes. That threat of the fighting the backfield. And I started building this army with the Necromancer, but I just could never get enough Nazgul to where I thought the competitive advantage of the Nazgul was taking effect. If, you, if you're running the Necromancer and you've only got two Nazgul, excuse me um it just it you you have to have numbers of them they've got to be scary uh, by the horde of nazgul and so that's why i got to the point where i dropped the necromancer oh, that's awesome so myers Mars, what are your what give are us your, your perspective what do you think about this army that you're hearing be brutal man because everybody listening or the one person listening is probably saying this is horrible um, well, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about Gundabad, but um, something that perked my ears was the strength four around the table, and then everybody having strike. Because that's one of the like one of the downsides to evil armies is you're pretty much going to have a lower fight the whole time, and you're counting on horde. So to be able to bring that to the table, uh, just it changes a lot of people's strategies if they're playing against you, and then. Obviously, we just talked about the ring race rule, but that that's insane because you can use that to – I mean, I feel like over 50% of the scenarios you play, um, that's that's going to change the game, and it'll, it'll change people's play style. And honestly, that's, that's all you really need to do is get someone to play something different and uh, get them on their heels. You get the roll of the dice, and you walk away with a win. That's a good point. And I think the one thing I glossed over in this army build is obviously this is an army that usually wants magic. And I feel like I have it, even though I don't have the Necromancer, but it's in a roundabout way. It's it's not magic, but it's kind of like it. So you might remember I've got two Merkwood spiders thrown in there, and they're move 10. So those are kind of my sneaky, speedy, they walk right over terrain, uh, quick movement. Um, but the thing I like about the Merkwood spiders, as most people know, is they've got that spider webs which basically means they get a, they've got a throwing weapon with a range of eight inches. And if they hit somebody, the, the target can spend fate. But if they don't spend fate or the fate isn't successful, they, un, they undergo the paralyzed magical power. So I've got two paralyzed casters with unlimited will potentially. Now they only hit on a five, but at two shots sitting in the back line, that's kind of scary. Yeah, it's going to hit. It's just a matter of time. So, yeah, I like that. And you said um, 
so that's your your range then is the spell casting do you have any bows zero bows i did not put any bows on the uh on the gunda on the hunter orcs they're they're hit on a five unless you take them in the hunter orc army the azog's hunters which case it goes down to a four so i just felt like it wasn't worth the points in this build now obviously i'm at 7.99 so likely what will happen is one of those hunter orcs will wind up with a bow to put me at an even 800 yeah well, no, it sounds like uh, I probably would have done the same thing with the bows, honestly, because hitting on a five and then even if you move them, what is that? You hit on a six then? Yeah. Yeah, that's not even worth it, I don't think. But, yeah, it sounds pretty good, man. I'm interested to play that. And now we have this tabletop simulator. Um, we could probably check it out. Yeah, it'd be good to play test that a few times. I, so I have a question for you, Matt, specifically about this. So because you took the army that you did, so you basically, because you're a pure army, I think this is like only the situation that could happen. You have a pure army with no army bonus. Mm -hmm. Did you think about allying anything in? Like, obviously, I've seen Hunter Orcs with Dol Guldor a few times. Um, what, like, are there any ally options that you specifically thought about but then decided... Uh, you just wanted to keep with the ring rates? Yeah, I mean, there's a. If you're not worried about going down to yellow allies, there's so many great options. You could bring in some of the three trolls. Um, I think the one that I looked at probably the most, because I could have just brought the Merkwood spiders from them, is bringing in the Spider Queen, which would be a yellow alliance, which doesn't hurt me at all on the spot. Um, so having the Spider Queen with Monstrous Charge, another three might hero, just seemed outstanding. Um, and obviously I haven't play tested this, so I might get there, but just, I just can't get away from the four ring rates and the keeper of the dungeons, having all those burly heroes that are going to win fights. Um, I just, it seems, seems good. But if I was going to make a convenient alliance, uh, it would probably be with the dark denizens of Merkwood. Got it. The What's trolls that? would also be an interesting dynamic just to get some. Some high fight, high strength, don't need to strike. I gotta pull up really quick as you guys continue. I gotta pull up the list for the trolls, but I don't remember how much they're they're costed at a points oh, value. They're pretty expensive. I've, I've actually got it open if you want me to go through the trolls. Um, yeah, maybe you can compare and contrast really quick, like your base ring raids cost versus a troll or versus that spider queen. So the ring raids are all 75 points, and so is the Keeper of the Dungeon. So keep that in mind with the five heroes currently in the list. Um, contrast that with the Trolls. So Build the Troll is 150 points. Uh, he's Fight 7, Strength 7, Defense 7, 3 Attacks, 3 Wounds, Courage 4, 3 Might, 1 Will, 1 Fate. Um, he can bring the Campfire for 15 points, which basically means if he's close to it, he gets resistant to magic. He's got the keep him full later, which means he can brutal power attack and paralyze people, uh, which I don't know that you'd ever use that with a strength seven monster, but that's a top for another time. He's also got Minsum Fine. Uh, instead of making strikes, choose one enemy model in the fight. Both Bill and the chosen model roll a d6, add their respective strength values. If Bill rolls higher, the victim suffers the number of wounds equal to the difference, each of which may be prevented by a fate. So that'd be Holy cool. cow. Yeah, that's a pretty good brutal power. Wait, wait, so you have strength seven. The typical hero is what? Strength four. So you're basically plus three. So 
you're plus three on us on a roll off and if you get a really good roll off you could put like seven or eight wounds on a on a hero yes and each one has to be faded individually versus one fate holy cow yeah that's a really really good rule um, and he's got heroic strength holy cow so you could even make this better oh yeah yeah you could go crazy with that okay so he's 150 points so he's basically two ring rates yep counts as two now they get cheaper as you go down so bert is 130 points he's fight seven strength seven d7 attacks three wounds three courage four two might one will one fate He's got heroic strength and heroic defense. They've all got terror and throw stones. I should have said that. <clears throat> He's got the keep them for later special rule. And his brutal power attack is roast him slowly. When Bert wins a fight, he may choose to perform a roast him slowly brutal power attack instead of making strikes as long as he is within six inches of a fire. Choose an enemy model involved in the fight and place it in base contact with the fire. That model is immediately set ablaze. So, again, this is one of those ones, maybe for a later podcast we can talk about. I don't ever see using the Roastum slowly. I mean, maybe a specific circumstance, but with a Strength 7 monster, if you're going to brutal a power attack, you're likely rending. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Okay, now, now Tom, who is probably my favorite, is, uh, is pretty interesting. So, he's lower fight, so he moves 6 inches. He's fight 6, Strength 6. Defense six, attacks three, wounds three, courage three, one might, three will, one fate. So he, he kind of sucks when you look at that baseline stat. He's got the terror, throw stones, keep them for later. But he's got two really cool rules, which is why he's my favorite. So the first one is basically his bat swarm or the power of the one ring rule, which is called the lingering cold. And I just love the theme because you imagine <laughs> you imagine being sneezed on by some nasty troll being covered in snot and seeing what that does to your fight value. <clears throat> During the fight that involves him, and before making a dual roll, Tom may expend a will point to have the fight value of a single foe in base contact as he sneezes on the victim. So pretty That's cool. That's disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> you can do that three times. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was dueling and I was covered in troll snot, I would not duel as well as I usually. I would not bring my A game. So Fendel would be thinking twice. <laughs> my shiny armor. Yeah. Okay, and then the other one is the squash and the jelly. When Tom wins a fight, he may choose to perform a squash and the jelly instead of making strikes. Every time a model is involved in the same fight, not counting supporting models, suffers a strength six hit. So it's kind of like the Sauron Unstoppable rule. Just a little less good. Got it. So anyways, I think they'd be cool. Um, but really, I think the Spider Queen would be a great option with that army. But of course, when is, when is the Spider Queen not a great option? No, that's, that's a good model. Um, maybe something we should actually feature on like a profile review, because that's probably one of the only models I have never seen represented in a real game i've never seen anybody take the spider queen um and the profile is just it's incredible it's insane and i'm pretty sure for 150 points yeah yeah and i'm pretty sure not the masters but the normal articon uh was won by spider queen alliance oh no way yeah it was a spider queen slash goblin town slash something else wow Myers, I don't really know about you, but I only had one other question kind of reading 
or listening to Matt kind of read off that list, the Kamul, the Easterling choice for your ring rates. So you had four ring rates. I've always seen the lingering shadow taken. I've never seen Kamul because you don't have the option to not be, you know, hindered by that two-handed weapon. So for those of you that don't know, Kamul's loadout, his wear gear is only a two-handed mace, I believe. Let me switch back to that page. I don't know if anybody else has it up really quick. No, you're correct. He's got a two-handed mace, but he gets three attacks. So he's got three attacks, but the permanent, the permanent two-handed um, penalty. So what's 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 what were you thinking there um, versus all of the other profiles you have available to you? You said when you first read through it, you had a, a strategy for negating that. Yeah, absolutely. So my thought was the weak spot in my army is actually the keeper of the dungeons. And that's because if he ever loses a fight, he's only got two attacks. So if you fluff your roll, um, you're in big trouble because he's got no fate. So my thought was, what if you permanently make Kamal the Easterling joined at the hip with the keeper of the dungeons? So together you have a five attack model that's fight five. Um, and you're adding two attacks that don't get the minus one penalty. You then synergize basically five points of might for heroic combats. Um, and you negate the odds of that two-handed roll really getting you. And so you're adding the, the keeper's weakness is he can't go out by himself because he's only got two attacks. He has to have support. So what if you let that support be a dice that has a minus one penalty? Worst thing that comes is you spend a point of might to bump that up to a six, but those two are a very scary combo together. You could also do the same thing by teaming Kamal up with the Witch King. Oh, sorry, I was muted there. So you basically are going to always have him paired with somebody else as like a bodyguard? Correct. Unless you're trying to kill him to use the six-inch resurrection. Hmm. That would be kind of a good, yeah, I didn't think about that. Because if you ever need to guarantee the fact that you will have the opportunity to spawn on the other side. So, so maybe you said this already and I totally missed it. So you're basically never going to be spinning his might until you want to win the combat slash kill the person. So he's basically like an assassin. Yeah, his might would be saved to impact the unholy resurrection. Or if you're in a spot where it's like game points on the line, if you get a wound then you use it to win the fight. Okay. As with three attacks, Burley, I like the odds of getting a wound on anything. Not not Burley, pardon me, but three attacks, two-handed. Got it. Man, that's actually a pretty sweet, uh, a pretty sl- sweet concept because, again, so many minor-ish, or they're heroes of valor, the ring rates are, but they're lower-pointed in terms of like how much they actually cost. You said 75 points for all of your heroes. So you have a ton of heroes, a ton of might, a ton of movement shenanigans that you could pull if people started dying quickly. So it's almost it's almost a bad spot that you'd put your opponent in if they want to kill your hero. You're going to be like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to now spawn behind you and now can do traps or I'm going to make you try to fight battles on both fronts with four models. Yeah. 
I mean, and actually, if you think about it, the concept with Kamol, okay, so put a couple hunter orcs with him and you've just added four attacks um, at his fight level in the duel. So he really, if you if you support him, he doesn't care about that minus one. And the other thing I'll say is I've tried to make the keeper work more because I like the model more than anything. Uh, you and I played him with doubles in, in Nova last year, but... The the last game I played was actually a tabletop simulator game with Myers a couple weeks ago, and the keeper is always underperforming because he's got two attacks. He has to have support. So if you ever do have a spot where he's paired off by himself and you get unlucky with your dice, he goes down quick. And I think that's exactly what happened, Myers, when you and I played. I, I had him supported. You got around the corner, and you paired him off, so he was by himself. He rolled two dice, rolled a four high, and I think it was uh, Dwalin and Thrain just destroyed him one turn. Yeah. I mean, that was just happened to be luck of the dice, because in that particular scenario, um, but yeah, like you say, underperforming. I just happened to have two heroes that ganged up, and then as soon as you don't roll that six... It's game over. Yeah, you just happen to have it after you spent three turns maneuvering everybody right into that move. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this, I, that's a good call out too because I think so. I think of Bolt when I think of these rules. Like I'm, I'm reading all of his his special rules that he gets better basically with every model he kills. It's the Bolg scenario at the same time. Very few times you actually get to that upper echelon of special rules to make him an incredible model. So most of the time you're going to be struggling just to get his first couple kills for the entire game. So, yeah, that's, I think that for me, that makes me, I think maybe infatuated with him more so than his actual output. Now, Matt, do you have any of those, um, I think they're they're not wraiths, but they're the specters that have paralyzed. Is that a Dolgodor? Um, no, that's Ang that's Angmar. Different list. Okay. Oh, but I guess you do have the Castellan the, the Castellans. Is that how you pronounce it? Castellans of Dolgodor. I had it like Castellians is what I've been calling them, but I'm not sure if it's right. Did you think about throwing them in? Because I I'm looking, they're only forty points. Holy cow! Yeah, they're pretty cheap, but um, they've got that will of evil, which isn't horrible. Um, they've got decent amount of will and Morgul blade option. Um, so I thought about it, but I mean, here's where my my trap my my Dolgoldur list always come back to being fairly similar, except for this time I'm not taking the necromancer. Thirty more points, and you get a ring wraith that can't die. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and there's no might with the Castellans or Castellians. And that's a good point. Man, so we're going to have to actually build a, another segment or maybe like a Part B segment where we talk about kind of how they actually playtested. Because you haven't playtested this at all, right? This has been just a purely theoretical list build. Correct. And it, I play Dolgoldur a lot because they're probably my favorite army. But I have never done it without the Necromancer. So this is a departure from comfort. And to Myers' point, Myers was talking about having the Paralyzed Bill. I tried to bring that in with the Merkwood Spiders. 
just because I like that dynamic with this is having another backline threat. Yeah. So, and the spiders do have that skill, right? Or the ability. They do. They do in a roundabout way. But I, I think what I'd like about this segment, if you guys don't mind, I would really love to hear if you knew you were going to face this army, what would you build to beat it? Like if, if, if you knew that this is what I was bringing and that was your only game, what's the ideal counter to a list like this? Oh, man. Um, well, first off, elves, something elves to negate your your res- unholy resurrection rule or to make it harder to actually pull that off. Um, yeah, low I, defense I, on the warriors. They just pick them apart with bows, too. Agreed. Elves are horrible at any time. Yeah, so the bows, yeah, the bows with the elven blades, but then also everybody takes Kyrdan with their elven list somehow. Uh, something that would prevent your warriors from actually being able to support your ring rates. So Kyrdan does the, what's the spell? Bubble of Terror. It's called Aura of Dismay. So that your your ring rates don't have anything to buff courage. So your orc warriors could potentially just get shredded by an elf army with terror, or even Myers is Myers is talking about his walking his Walking Dead, or his uh not Walking Dead. The White Walkers, those terrifying models as well. Your orcs would potentially never be able to help your ring rates. Yeah, um, Ter- terror just ruins this army. So yeah, now the, Myers, hun- the hunter, the hunter orcs have the ability to bring a warhorn. I did not do that in this option, but that's usually something if you're going hunter orc heavy, you really want a warhorn in the list. Myron, what do you what do you what would you think about an army if you were trying to build for this matchup? Yeah, I, I probably would go high fight value. So I think the best option of that would either be elves or try to strategically I like the dwarves, so I mean it's kinda it's gonna be more of an elite style army. So I'm gonna pay extra points to try to fight just so that um I definitely want terrifying, and then I want to be able to win the fight. So that, that's what I would do. But like I said, I'm not – I'd have to t- uh, trial and error. Uh, I guess there's one way to find out. So. Yeah, and the thing I was thinking about, Myers, when you just said that too, is high fight value. That sounds really attractive, but I just thought about this. What happens if you do have, let's say, like a Lord of the West against a ring rate? So the ring rate is definitely going to be out-dueled on a fight value. But – it's a, it's a weird scenario because Matt doesn't care really if the ring rate dies. Now let's let's put away the the elven blade just for a second. Let's say it's a Aragorn. Let's say Aragorn versus no, because Aragorn has Endural. This is a bad example. Let's say it's Dane Ironfoot. So he's got a high fight value against this ring rate. The ring rate doesn't really care if he dies. So if the ring rate strikes and Dane strikes, you're basically forcing a model to use up their their resources. Um, with little to no risk, right? So this is this is a weird dynamic. Hmm. Odds are in your favor. You're going to roll a three plus. That's true. So you're saying you influence. Hoard back at it and just trust that 
you know, you're, you're going to try to lose that fight and just tie up the ring with. Yeah. And then I, I was thinking like, a maybe some sort someone, one of these kingdom of men alliances where they have bonuses to fight value. So I'm thinking Boromir with his banner where he could make his, his basic troops fight four or fight five, depending on what you take or Imra Hill and his basic troops, making them, you know, super fight value. Something like that, where you're basically on a warrior level facing the same model count, but superior quality. That could be tough because your defense sucks. So if you if you have a lot of lost fights, the chances of you dying on the hunter orcs at least is pretty high. What are you What are you thinking would be a huge weakness, Matt? Are you Are there any armies that you know about already that? Besides elves and just the elven weapon rule, are there any armies that give you a tough time? Here's my number one weakness. But I'm going to clarify. I don't want to sound as negative towards the game because I absolutely love this game. But I think it is broken when certain evil armies play evil. So the number one thing that I don't want to play is an evil army with Harbinger of Evil. Because my hunter orcs are going to be Courage 1. And that is just going to play fully terror on me because this entire army works really, really well. If the ring rays get support, if the ring rays are out by themselves, it's very easy to pick a ring wraith off. Uh, so that's, that's item number one. So number one in all of that is Angmar. This does not have an answer to Angmar other than hope you get lucky with courage rolls and break the Angmar force. That's about it. I guess the only nice thing is all of my heroes cause terror, so Angmar's going to have a hard time cha- charging them in general. That's fair. Elves, yeah, you evil. pointed that out. Elves are bad. Army of the Dead, I think I can deal with Army of the Dead just because I'm probably going to outnumber them two to one. And I can tie Aragorn up, so I'm not too worried about returning the king. Not too worried about the king of the dead. So, I think it's elves, Angmar, and a ringwraith-led evil army. Yeah, that would be another topic that'd be super fascinating to discuss on a different on a different episode. Just what happens if you're trying to build an army, but it's good versus good or evil versus evil? Because sometimes it can just play horrible. What'd you call it? Unholy craziness on your army because there's nothing yeah. you can do. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they straight up admit that the purest form of the game is good versus evil. That's why they do it at the GT. So it's just, it's not really fair to have an event and demand people buy two armies. Not everybody's crazy. So like me and likes to buy them just for the fun of it. So, well, I'm, I'm excited to hear kind of after you get a chance to play test this, hear what your observations are here. If your um, list changes or evolves a little bit, to fill holes or to kind of emphasize some strengths as you see it on the battle table. Cause what are we, we're about five months away from September Nova. So you have a decent amount of time to try and play test it as long as coronavirus doesn't shut down every game between here and then. Yeah. Let's hope it doesn't. But uh, yeah, I think the one thing that we can all count on is that this list will not look the same by Nova. I'm a serial list changer. So <laughs> Yeah, be interesting to see how it comes out. Awesome. 
Well, let's move on. Let's move on to our next topic. Unless anybody has a final closing comment for the, the army review. Okay. So this is guidance from the Valar rules that you think need to be changed. FAQ'd or just seem like a head scratcher. And Matt, we're actually going to go back to you again because you, you sent in a submission for what to kind of talk about in our first edition of this segment. Young Dwallen. Um, he's got a special rule that just seems a little bit out there. You want to walk us through, give us a little background, why you think this is weird, and we can kind of chime in and, and debate whether or not there's an actual use for this or et cetera. Yeah. yeah, so this is one that just, to me, seems like maybe an oversight um if it's not it's messing up the points value for the model but uh young dwallen has weapon master weapon master basically means that you never count as unarmed so if for some reason you get you know i think there's only one model that does shatter that i know of um, so if you lose all your weapons somehow you don't suffer the minus one penalty for being unarmed you're never unarmed the other Part of Weapon Master special rule is that you don't suffer the minus one penalty for wielding a two-handed weapon. Probably the best part of Weapon Master. But in Young Dwallen's profile, he's got two axes. None of them are two-handed. So he's basically got points, or he's costed, for a Weapon Master rule that does not no good. Because when you play against a Moria Black Shield Shaman, very seldom do they get two shatters off on the same model. He has two axes, so he's not worried about that. And uh, he doesn't have a two-hand. So, in my opinion, I think this should either be FAQ'd to say, hey, we forgot. He's got a two-handed axe in his profile. Or change his points value and take away Weapon Master and do something else with that for a special rule. I'd be curious to hear your guys' opinions. I've asked on several of the more famous Facebook pages, the GBHL and the American Strategy Battle Game Alliance, hey, is he supposed to have a two-handed weapon? And everybody says no. Um, so, I mean, we have consensus that, you know, we're reading the rules and we're interpreting, right? But why has it been done this way? No, absolutely. And, and But before we get into that, Matt, would you give us a quick rundown? So, Young Dwallen. There's two, there's multiple Dwallen profiles. So can you give us a quick compare contrast between like maybe the typical Dwallen profile and this young Dwallen profile? Yeah, so I think the one I use the most of Dwallen is Dwallen from the Champion of Erebor. So he's fight six in Champions of Erebor, strength five, defense eight, three attacks, two wounds, courage six, three might, two will, two fate got heroic strike heroic strength he can be on a goat he's burly fearless sworn protector thor and oaken shield he's got weapon master he's got the king's axeman and he's got a special rule that says he can go to four attacks if he uses his two two-handed axe or three attacks if he uses his one two-handed axe so in his war gear this is the more typical loadout he's got two hand axes Excuse me. He's got a two-handed axe and two regular axes. So he can fight with the two axes at four attacks or the one two-handed weapon with three attacks. And that's that's not exactly the same as what's in the uh, the um, 
Thorin's company one, right? Thorin's, yeah, the Thorin's company. But it's really it's similar. Pretty, it's, it's pretty close. But, you know, when you go to the army of Thror, you lose the Burly rule. This is the you Young Dwallin, right? Yeah, the Young Dwallin rule. You lose a lot of the special rules, and you just go down to Weapon Master only. And you also lose the two-handed weapon. Yeah, so that's it's a great call out. I, I personally, I've thought about this, so I actually knew about this question a little bit ahead of time. I spent some time trying to think of why on earth they would want Weapon Master on this profile, the Young Dwallin profile. Because again, the other two... Just to reiterate what you said, the other two profiles have a two-handed weapon option so that you can basically decide, hey, do I want to have more killing power or do I want to have more opportunities to roll dice, right? Young Dwalin doesn't have either of those. So it, it baffles me because this is something that actually came up somewhat recently when somebody was explaining to me how much these special rules on average, how much these special rules cost. So if you have, in this case, Weapon Master, so he's got two axes. So again, Matt, what you said, two shatters or two two things that would otherwise render his weapons useless and make him fly unarmed. Super, super low, low probability of that ever happening. He's basically playing for a Weapon Master rule to protect against only having both of his axes shattered. And what I heard, and I haven't had a chance to actually fact check this, but I'm sure it's pretty close because it was a pretty good player telling me, these special rules tend to be between 5 and 15 points, this type of rule usually being about 10 points. So you're paying 10 points on a model that you're never going to actually realize? Exactly. And nobody is going to shatter young Dwalin in, if you're running Army of Thor because there's Thorin and Thrain that are just right for the picking. So if you are playing a Moria Blackfield Shaman, young Dwalin is the last person they're shattering if he doesn't have a two-handed weapon. Yeah, and I guess on that point too, and not to go down a rabbit hole, young Dwalin probably is not going to be seen very much in an army just because in this specific build you have yeah, Thor, Thrain, Thorin, Young Thorin, Oakenshield, Balin with his long beard rule. So he's he's not a he's not a model that generally graces the battlefield. But if still, he was sixty five points, he'd be right in there. But at eighty five points, I agree with you. And it's such a shame because who doesn't want to have Mohawk Dwalin on the board? <laughs> I mean, he, he is so cool. Well, and, he's basically. Yeah, not to nerd out on you guys, but he, looking at his point value and looking at his stat line, he's basically an Urukai Lurts, like an Urukai Legion Lurts. He's got a high defense, high strength, high fight value, three attacks, like any model with three attacks. Holy cow! Um, but yeah, paying that paying that premium for Weapon Master. And so I would love to see if anybody comes back with a a counter argument for why this rule was included. I'm looking at the digital. So I just had this panic thought. I'm looking at the digital version right now. There hasn't been an update to this, right? Does somebody have the actual rule book open the paper, the printed version? I do not. No. Yeah. I, I've got it open Marcus. Okay. So this isn't, I had an issue recently where like the digital, I didn't have the updated digital version down. So I was missing a rule in a profile. 
They're like, man, I hope this isn't like a weird glitch. No, I'm I'm tracking with you. Everything's been cool so far. Man. Well, excited to see if anybody posts like a counter argument to why he has this rule. Um, Which I know Mitchell had told us and he wouldn't give us the answer because he was saving it for the show he's not on. But uh, he had said there is a specific reason for it. And I I struggle with it. I don't know. I'm excited to hear what he says. We'll get him on. We'll get him on next time. And we'll have to have a, a cop out section where we go back to this. Yes. Recap. Redo. Absolutely. Cool. Well, let's let's move on unless there's any other uh, comments you guys want to throw on that that subject. I don't think we're golden. Yeah, yeah. Next next segment, disturber of the peace. Aren't you becoming quite the little problem? So this is the segment where we kind of talk about a house rule or a game rule or just something that you experienced while playing a game that just wasn't in the rules, but it made your experience either way better or way worse. Um, I know we had a submission. We were kind of maybe like a general conversation about the number one rule in the entire rule book, the golden rule, kind of how that applies to general games. Um, Matt, if you don't mind kind of kicking back to you again, um, maybe expand on how you've seen this in a game or two or kind of how you've, you've experienced this in the last year of gaming. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a super competitive type person. Like that's probably the reason I was drawn to this game is the opportunity to build a list, see how it matches up with lists other people do, um, kind of have the battle of the the strategy. I just I just love that aspect. But I think what trumps that for me is when I'm playing a game it's really, really important to me that my opponent's having a good time. Like, worst outcome for me is I win a game, but I was a jerk, and the opponent never wants to play me again. Um, so, like, that's always on my mind. So, this and that's even the first rule of the game is, you know, have fun. Treat your opponents respectfully. I'm paraphrasing, but... So, I think something that often gets lost is in my desire to make sure everybody's having a good time and you're not a jerk is oftentimes like there's there's violations to the spirit of the rules or just outright rules aren't being complied with and calling your opponent out on it is kind of tough because it's a fine line are you being just a jackass or are you trying to maintain the integrity of the game so i think that's kind of this whole topic is how do you do that without disturbing the peace which was our fun pun on this rule segment but but I, I kind of want uh, you guys to talk about your take on that. But then I'd like to talk about probably a best practice that I ran into at a competitive tournament recently that I just thought was such a great example of how to have both being a great opponent and being litigious with the rules. Hmm. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Myers, you want to take first stab at it? Um, I would say... Obviously, haven't had a lot of games played, but um, the problem I can see with that would be any kind of rolling the dice. Um, if people aren't, I mean, that's the issue I've seen is if people are kind of half-assing a rule. I don't know if it's because they're just rolling the dice twice, or like you know, they have to do 50 rolls, so they're just kind of barely rolling it. But if I see 
someone not really attempting to actually roll the dice. That's kind of gets on my nerves. But yeah, I'm kind of talking about just kind of dropping the dice where you don't feel like you're really randomizing the roll. Yeah, it's kind of like, okay, I know, I don't know. It's all speculation, but it is a game of, that's just something that gets under my skin, but I usually, I'm playing it the same way. I'd rather just, you know, make it through the game because chances are that one encounter is not going to make or break the game. And if it is, then you're probably playing crappy anyways. So I I personally, the rolling the dice and then uh, something I need to work on because I've been called out. I think Marcus actually was the one that was calling me out was moving <laughs> a figure and then uh, setting it down and then realizing that you want to, restart the move so you go to put them back so which i agree with it's i mean it's fair so i mean if you pick a model up and move it like that's the final move like you can't really go back and change the move yeah that's hardcore when you're going back to the old chess rules like once your finger <laughs> is off the figure you can no longer touch it done yeah so i mean obviously if you're playing competitively that's where you need to be so i mean i see that but as for me, I'd move a model and then realize, like, oh, there's, this is definitely a better way to go. But then I don't want to be, you know, the guy that's like, you have to change the rules for me. So, but yeah, that's, that's the only thing I can think of right now. Well, yeah, that's, right. if you don't mind if I just build off that, like, it's easy to nitpick someone who says, no, once you move it, it's done. Well, unless you're marking where it started, how do you put it back to where it actually was? And in a game where a half inch is a huge deal, like I can see how that's that's a thing. Um, I typically don't play that way myself, but like if you're gonna move it and you want to put it back, you should mark where it started, or else have a model that it was in base contact that you can go back with. Uh, as long as you're doing that, I don't see the problem with putting it back. But you know, you run into all these things if you're if you're taking the time to pre-mark and do all that stuff and you're in a two hour competitive event then you're likely slow playing, which leads into another issue. But yeah, that's, that's a very interesting topic. Marcus, what do you think? Oh, this is something I, I seriously wish Mitchell was on right now. Cause I feel like we could have an amazing kind of discourse on this, on this golden rule. Cause Mitchell and I have had what you said, Matt, crazy competitive games. Maybe we're all a little too competitive for our own good. Um, so we've definitely had the games that end in frustration or the games that end up really fun. But I think the the underlying difference for me has been the expectation going into the game. So I think something that I've really enjoyed about a lot of the guys that play in the Seattle area is the expectation to play in the game. It's like socializing first, seeing the army second, drinks or food after like the gaming session and then the game itself is number four so it's like a real it's like a real strong community real strong like vibe in terms of everybody's having a really good time and i think with that that mentality of i mean it sounds so cliche and it sounds like so anti um competition like everybody gets a trophy but with that mentality of hey we're all on the same team almost the little things become a lot less severe. So like, yeah, maybe, maybe a model got moved too much or maybe a piece of terrain got bumped or maybe everybody forgot to mark down um, resources that were spent during the game. 
it all kind of comes, it, it all is a moot point if everybody's kind of focused on the road to more games and not the specific game in itself. And I think maybe that's a different mentality than you would have at a competitive event where you're trying to make sure you win every single game. But for me, I think that just that setting the expectation clearly at the, at the forefront of what you are hoping to get out of the day versus like obsessing over winning. Um, There's a little bit of a rant, but I don't know if that made sense or if, that just seemed like a total wish-wash. No, I think it's a completely valid. I mean, because let's face it. First of all, in a community like the Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game, it's not huge. Now, I feel like it's growing, and that's good. But you're dealing with a pool, if you're lucky, of 20 players that you get to work with. Um, so if if you're not an enjoyable opponent for your friends to play against, your likelihood of future games is diminished. So... You want to protect that first and foremost. So I I think it's extremely valid. And then even when you go to competitive events, like I think that should kind of be the deal. Um, If someone didn't like playing you, man, I wouldn't feel very good about a a win if if they walked away thinking that you're a jerk. So I think you're spot on. Yeah, and they always have like the awards for like best sport or best, best competitor or whatever they call it. I feel like that's not something that's really highlighted. Like it's it's unseen until the award's actually given out. And it's like, oh yeah, that person actually was super awesome to play against. Um, it's not something that a lot of times seems to be highlighted, but universally everybody can see it. I guarantee it. Like if you have an awesome person, they might lose every single game or they might win every single game. But I'd much, I'd much rather get my butt whooped from a person who's really cool versus getting my butt butt whooped by somebody who's just a jerk about it. I completely agree. Now, one thing I want to talk about is for the people who are just saying, well, the game is not worth playing if you don't follow the rules. And I, I personally, (laughs) the people in my local group would be willing to vouch that that's, that's me. Uh, (laughs) I'm a rule stickler. I can't help it. I try to be nice, but I, I, I enjoy rules because rules give boundaries. Um, I, I, I want to give a shout out and I'm not going to say the name, but I, I, you said something earlier that is key. And I saw this practice and it was just, it was so much fun. You said expectations early on are what's important because if you're starting a match and everything's friendly and you're not really paying too much attention. And then all of a sudden when the game is getting ready to end and all the chips are on the line. And all of a sudden, you're calling your opponent out for not measuring properly. Well, I mean, I'm just going to say that's a jackass move. But if you're starting the game and you talk about, hey, here's here's a few things that's really important to me. That would you would you watch me on to make sure that when I move, I'm measuring perfectly? Because when I move, I want you to know exactly that I was in range or was not. So would you watch me? And I'm going to do the same for you. You're setting an expectation for how the game is going to be played. And that lays the ground rules for a friendly game that is in line with the rules. And I, I probably had what I would consider the funnest game I have ever played a couple weeks ago at a tournament. And my opponent was so awesome. But like right off the bat, like before we were in starting, he wanted to know about all the models in my profile and specifically the rules and he had a few questions and he asked about it and then he then he asked how are you going to be measuring for your moves and how do you make your moves and if you're not sure if you can make it how do you measure out in advance 
And it was some really like basic questions, but the way he asked before we even started the game, it laid the groundwork that we were going to be technically precise. And then when he questioned later or asked me to measure something, it was like not even, it was a friendly environment because it was like in keeping with what we both agreed to at the start. So I just thought that was really cool. And I thought it was worth a shout out. If, if that's something that's important to you, talk about it with your opponent ahead of time, ask him to hold you accountable to it. You'll do the same. And I think you can have a fun, friendly game that's that's like in keeping with the rules as written. I don't know what your guys' thoughts on that is. But I, I, I think I just one more thought. It's like playing that way has the potential to be not fun. But the way my opponent did it, it was awesome. And I, I truly think that's probably the most fun I've ever had playing the game. And it was definitely the most rules compliant game I've ever played. Well, yeah, it just it brings a whole other factor to it, right? You said old school chess rules earlier like it just makes things so precise and you have to think out so far in advance what you want to do if you're you're being that technical but i i completely agree i think in a in a community where you're all honestly even i've played for how many years but with all the new additions it seems like the rules are brand new every time i look at them um everybody's learning together I've messed up so many rules that I thought I knew absolutely fundamentally inside and out, and I was completely wrong. So I think having an environment where you are willing to learn, willing to be corrected, willing to, you know, what I swear this is in that first segment too, where they talk about the golden rules. Like if you can't come to agreement, don't argue, just be willing to do the roll off to one, two, three, four, five, six. Like, hey, if something's gray, let's just roll on it so we can keep playing. Like, it's not a big deal either way. Because um, at the end of the day, we're all going to go and visit and, and we're going to come back next time and play games as well. Like, this isn't a one time, I'm never going to meet you again type deal. So, yeah, uh, we're all going to be friends. And I think we all got to remember we're playing with toy soldiers. <laughs> yes, that we painted. <laughs> Uh, but that's why it'll be fun. Maybe we'll have to do two kind of repeats when Mitchell comes back. Because Mitchell and I, I think, are a, a quintessential example of how you can do things really cool uh, in terms of, you know, sportsmanship and how it can go horribly wrong. Because we've played, we've played some nail biters that just came down to the wire. They got pretty heated. And like brothers who've played for 10 years, it can get kind oh, of yeah. intense. And <laughs> I, I love watching you guys play because brothers like really don't care about being good sports with each other because your brothers you're stuck with each other so um yeah. that's a fun dynamic right. watching you two yell at each other while you roll dice that was 6.1 not six inches get back <laughs> uh let's jump into our next segment uh it's going to be our competitive play categories check in your wallet that's me on the dollar bill so basically, this is going to be anything kind of related to competitive play, whether it be questions that come up in a like a tournament or preparing for a tournament. Um, it, really, it really can be a wide variety of things. But what I think we wanted to start talking about was competitive list building. Um, just maybe a couple like quick pointers of what you experienced um, preparing for versus what you actually ran into in reality. And I think this is going to be kind of cool because Myers, you haven't played in any competitive events, I think. 
and Matt, you played in a bunch. I played in a few as well. So it'd be kind of a cool opportunity to kind of to share some insight. Um, Myers, as you're preparing for some comp- upcoming events, uh, and then Matt and I, who have have experienced a few already this year. So uh, I can actually start maybe with this one. I haven't let off for a question in a while. So. Uh, you stole my thunder, Matt, a little earlier talking about when you're building a list, the idea of facing good versus good or evil versus evil. So I won't go into that one because I think that is something that you always have to consider when you're playing an event where there are no restrictions in terms of playing uh, faction, whether it be good or good or evil. But something that has just absolutely eaten at me from a competitive perspective recently is the idea of shooting. I think I have a very controversial outside opinion, but this is, let me just state it and then you guys can tear it apart or tell me where I'm stupid, but bows like my, my, my mantra on competitive shooting weapons is that I'm not going to take them unless they are the best in game. So what I mean by that is, I am not going to ever take a shooting model unless they are an elven archer or a crossbow or some sort of, maybe it's like a, a throwing weapon built in, baked into the actual profile itself. But I am, I am not going to pay the points or sacrifice a model count for a bowman because I have been burned so many times with facing a unique special rule like blinding light where you can't ever hit or maybe playing a scenario where you can't really shoot, like, uh, what is that? Not Clash by Moonlight. A, yeah, Clash by Moonlight. Um, or even more so, especially if you play at a really cool event where they have just beautiful boards. A lot of these beautiful boards have crazy terrain that actually create line of sight blocking elements, and that it's so easy to hide behind it. So I... I I've, I've done so many list variations that include shooting and I've gotten burned by it. I've become so jaded against it. So that's my, that's my list building. Usually when I start off, I usually include zero shooting weapons and then have to really be convinced to add them back in. So curious to hear what you guys think about that. Um, and then if you also have your own preferences or thoughts preparing for, for the first time or having gone through a couple of events. Myers, go ahead, buddy. So, as far as bows, because I, I have dabbled just a little bit in a few games that I've played. Um, obviously, I think that one of the biggest strengths that they have is you can either force an enemy to charge. You can force movement if maybe you want to sit back. Um, you can target cavalry. So, I mean, obviously you can't target them, but you have the chance to shoot horses before they get, which wastes the enemy's points. Um, the only thing that I see a huge problem with that I've had is moving with them. If you, Obviously your movement's cut in half if you still want to shoot. Like if you're going to pay the points to use bows or crossbows, like you have to use them. Um, so it's like a gamble because if you get into a situation where you're playing a scenario, for instance, um, I think it's like seize the prize <clears throat> or if you're playing domination or the one of the ones where you actually have to move, that could be a downside to you because either you split your army up and you leave some archers off to the side or, you know, you're going to try to 
you say, you know, screw the bows, I'm just going to have to move to the objective, or do I let him get it and just try to shoot him before he leaves? So, like I said, I'm still new to it, so I'm sure you guys have some some answers for that, but that's that's just the biggest things I think about when putting bows into an army. Yeah, so I think really good points, Myers. Um, you know, I'll kind of walk through my learning the game, and then I'll Marcus at your expense. I'll talk about the shooting. But <laughs> like as I as I was learning to play the game, one of my really good buddies in the local group here is is an elf fiend. Um, I think he has every elven army in the books. But um, and myself usually playing evil because I like good versus evil um, would find myself every game marching across the board under fire of this crazy archery, losing a huge portion of my army before I ever even got into combat. And that just was the way the game was played. And I always thought elves were super crazy, overpowered, horrible things. But then as you, as you get into the game and you quit just playing open play, you start to play match play and playing the objectives I think you realize that shooting really loses some of its pungence if you are a good army with shooting because not being able to shoot through friendly models or not being able to shoot into combat is a huge handicap. And yes, you might have two, four, even five turns of shooting uh, with, with crazy chance to wound. But a lot of the scenarios, if you're playing competitive scenarios would encourage your opponent to let himself be quartered or broken while he's sitting on objectives while you're back on the board shooting and he's going to win the game. So I think, I think I'm no longer of the opinion that elves are overpowered because sitting in the corner shooting is balanced out by the scenario play. And then Marcus, I think your point is spot on because from your perspective, I don't know that we ever played with the amount of terrain you see a lot of the high-end tournaments. And when you're playing on a fairly open board, shooting can just dominate a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when 33% of the terrain, or 33% of the board is terrain, shooting becomes a whole different spectrum. So I can understand your perspective. And you know, when you play at a high-end tournament like Nova, You've got to plan your entire gun line based on shooting alleys. And that's a that's hard to do. So I can see your point. I don't know that I go all the way to the extreme of not taking them, but I think you have to learn how to build your list and plan around it. I personally am of the opinion that a good army based on shooting is a loser. An evil army, I don't think so, because the ability to shoot your own guy when you've got a... Uh, Gullivar getting ready to heroic combat. You just, I can't even describe the value of that. Um, shooting into combat just in general makes evil crossbows one of the best tools in the game, in my opinion. Yeah, and I guess as a full disclosure, right, you <laughs> you told everybody you're building an Umbar super crossbow list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I I told him I want to build it, but I will not do it until I'm done with these stupid Rohan models. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, so we'll have a little bit of reprieve until we have to face... What are they always... You get like 16 or 18 crossbows in your 800-point list. Like, it's 
Umbar is just filthy. Crossbows and throwing weapons. The current one is 16 crossbows. Um, oh, my Just about every model with a throwing weapon. But Oh, my goodness. But, I mean, I do the, I do the same thing in Iron Hills. I, I always take at least six crossbows in my Iron Hills list. I just don't think they have the utility with being blocked out in combat. In my Iron Hills, I take my Iron Hills crossbows with a spear, and I play them as normal support warriors until a shooting opportunity presents itself. So I view that as a six-point giveaway because the times when randomly halfway through the game when this beautiful target manifests in the backlog or Gullivar is all of a sudden within 24 inches with no in the ways and you're throwing six crossbows at him, I just find that delicious for whatever reason. That's a good point. And I had bows for that. Now, that there's a whole different aspect that I think um, is the throwing so we have far range, which is bows and crossbows, mid to far. But um, something that I think I have diverted my, I mean, my, it's my whole dwarven strategy as far as mid range is all throwing axes. And, um, you know, if you have throwing spears with an army, I think that as far as scenario play, I think that's the way to go. Kind of going off what you said, Matt. I mean, if you do the crossbows for the one or two turns, then I see the, the point to that. But as far as me, just because I know for the majority of the game, I'm probably not going to be able to use all of my bows. I would feel a lot more insured with the throwing weapons just because, you know, you're going to charge into combat. So if you have that throwing weapon, it's just an extra chance to take out the front line. Well, I want to push back a little bit, too, because I... I don't want to come across as just some crazy player. Like, I don't lose every single one of my games, but shooting, I think, now, is by as a far. matter of fact, you, you win most of them. You won the last tournament that we were at, to be fair. So, well, nice, nice humble card, but we're not going to let that stand. You're crazy, <laughs> you're crazy good at competitive play. I just, the, the shooting, I, maybe it's just because I've been burnt. And I think with my crazy idea or my premise of I'm not going to take shooting, until I'm forced to add them back in. I think I also need to follow that up with, I usually run a very consistent style of army, whether it's good or evil. I'm usually higher defense. I'm usually higher model count. Um, so I, I'm, not a, I'm not scared of running into the scenarios where an army has the opportunity to sit back and shoot. Um, because I, I basically can absorb some of those casualties or have my defense kind of help me out on the crossbows or help me out on the archery crossbows excluded because crossbows are just a weird dynamic that shred most armies. The one thing I will say in addition to that is I have played, I don't know if this is just extreme luck or extreme misfortune. I have played so many armies with blinding light and there's nothing more depressing than playing, you know, let's say, let's say you take a moderate amount of archers Correct me if I'm wrong. Throw some models out, guys. In my opinion, the best type of archer is going to be somebody that has a bow and a spear so that you at least have the chance to kind of support uh, a close combat fight oh, yeah. uh, as well Completely. as sit back and shoot. Completely agree. Or maybe, I guess, Rohan Cavalry. They can, they can either be charging or, or shooting from their, from their horse. But when you well, go I up think what you're saying is a, is, a, is a model that is multifaceted. He's not just an archer if you're going to build it. 
Okay, yeah, that's a good point. So basically, if you have a pure archer or somebody that isn't multifaceted and you're up against that blinding light three times in a row, which that's happened to me before, it's just it's horrible. Like I've had crossbows that just sit up against Kirdan for three games in a row. And it's they're they're basically worthless and they don't have that multifaceted function. So I think I could be persuaded. I think that would be the category where I'm forced to add them back if I have that Iron Hills crossbow where they have a crazy shooting strength, but also the ability to bring a spear and charge into the supporting ranks. Um, I don't know if you guys have any other really good supporting archer or supporting shooting model types that you can think of off the top of your head. But I just paying for a pure archer. Uh, and what I mean by that is a model that just has a bow just seems so annoying to me because I've been burned so many times. No, and I can totally get that. I, I I think you said it better than I did. You want models that aren't multifaceted, that are multifaceted. You don't want something that if for some reason you're up against the Lady of Light, you're just thinking, okay, I've lost this game. You want a plan. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think, I mean, in general, list builds that if you can say someone who brings blinding light and terror, that you're all of a sudden an extreme underdog, you haven't built your list properly. You've got to build with a very small segment of things in the game that puts you as an underdog. Otherwise, the army isn't isn't probably ideal. Now, I've met some players who can make up for that, and it's just because they're so good at strategy that they purposely do that just because they enjoy outplaying people. But for people like me, you've, you've got to build your list to be more versatile that's awesome any other uh any other comments on competitive play or you guys any other closing comments oh good i'm ready for the noob to start asking questions <laughs> let's do it let's let's jump to our final segment ask a newbie aka what does myers think really such a noob <laughs> so Myers, Marcus, this is... give, give him a little background on this segment because I think if people understand the spirit of this segment, it'll be a lot more fun. Oh, that's 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 a good point. Okay, so Myers, you you told everybody that you're recently into the game. You've been watching Matt and Mitchell and I play for years, let's say. Um, recently got a game. You're a you're a smart player. You, we always play board games. You got good. You got a good head on your shoulder and good strategy. But there's so many rules to this game, and there's so many different ways you can take this game. And the game is so well balanced. There really isn't a meta that breaks all. Like there isn't really a, in my opinion, there isn't a broken way to play this game. Um, so when you started playing, you asked a lot of questions about, hey, like how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you approach the game? Um, you, I think you understand the basics really well. Like you have a good comprehension of what your army can do. Like, is your army an elite army or is your army a horde army? And how do you play those differently? But you got into some, I, I, I don't want to call them basic questions, but you got into some questions. You're like, Hey guys, like, this is what I'm thinking. What did, what have you thought? And it's, we have a group chat that's, on either facebook or text message whatever it is and we just keep either throwing questions or throwing updates in there and it 
kind of got to that funnel where you were able to just ask questions without any judgment, without it's like a safe a safe space to ask theoretical questions. So that's why we call it, and we're just making fun of you because you've only been playing for a couple months. But um, oh. in all seriousness, I think it's it's really just a, a platform. What questions do you have? What have you recently run into? Um, is anything like strange to you? Uh, or are you looking for guidance on a situation that you ran into that didn't go your way? So, Well, yeah, and off the bat, I have one that uh, I want to bring up. But it's exactly what you said. You know, it's a it's a basic concept, but I think the ability to actually play effectively and competitively is mastering the basics. So um, the the one question that I have run into, and it's like a constant assessment of because probably one of my favorite part about the game is when we finish, you know, win or lose, we go over like a a battle track like we basically do a summary of what happened what we think you did well or what you did bad and one thing that i can never understand if i'm doing correctly is monitoring the expenditure of my might from heroes and what i mean by that is you know am i calling heroic actions correctly at the right times am i maybe being a little too conservative um, when would be you think the best times to call certain heroes actions and when to use those actions particular and i'll use an example for that i played a game last night with mitchell and marcus you were kind of watching on tabletop simulator um i had i was playing serpent horde and i was using it was uh, i think it was siege seize the prize and so i was trying to rush to the middle of the board my first instinct since i had suladan on horse I called a heroic march and because I was trying to get to the middle of the board, I thought right off the bat, you know, he's on horse. That way he can stay with them and I can move a little squad of serpent riders out there to grab it. Um, so basically looking back, all of my Herodrum Kings had the heroic march. I think everybody has the march. And I think I should have used, I should have conserved Suladan's might because he has strike. And that was the most important heroic action that not everybody has. So that's the basic of this question. What do you guys think as far as spending might, when to do it, when not to? Um, yeah. This one, I feel like it's super vague because I think it can go several different directions. But this is maybe the first thing I thought of when you asked the question, Myers. So I think how do you... How do you kind of gauge how you're spending it depends on kind of what army you built. So I'm just going to go with, with a typical army that I like to build. I like to have, I think as a requirement for when I'm building my list, I like to have a decent amount of might. And what I mean by that is like at least two to three might per hero. Like I like to have a lot of might to be able to spend in a lot of different ways. Um, your, your comment about spending it in your specific situation where you have heroes, you have a lot of heroes that can all do the same thing, but then only one hero that can do one specific thing, like the heroic strike. Yeah, I think it makes sense that you don't want to be using his resource, right? Because that prevents you from doing something later in the game. So if you can use a march from a generic hero, um, that frees up your, your bigger hero to call a strike later on in the game or more times during the game. Like, absolutely. I think that sounds good. Um, the, the one thing I think about when I'm spending might 
and I, I wouldn't say I do this well, but I, this is what I try to do because I saw somebody else do it and it was just crazy awesome. They only spent a point of might when there was a more than average chance that their desired outcome could be achieved. And what I mean by that is, uh, let's say you have a hero combat. No matter where you're at in the game, like let's say you're halfway through the game or at the beginning of the game or at the end of the game, they are never going to spend that point of might unless they know that they're going to basically get a return for it. So hero combat, let's say you have a big hero with a lot of support on one soldier. That's a pretty easy one. Like you're probably going to win it. And if you win it, you're probably going to kill the model. So you're going to get your your money back for that heroic might or heroic action. Um, the heroic moves, I think, are really common. And those a lot of times end up in roll-offs. So my opinion on those is I would only ever call a heroic move with a model that I didn't care had the might to begin with. So again, Myers, your your scenario where you had, I think you said you had two kings of men, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so th- those are like really great models that have two points of might, but they can't do in a lot of special heroic actions. So if I was going to call moves and I could call it with that lesser hero, um, because again, I'm not I'm not really counting on them to pull off a lot of amazing feats during the game. Um, that basically creates a horde of stash of might for my big hero. If I want to do, if I want to have like a big Dan Ironfoot or a big, you know, Witch King on Fell Beast, I want them to always have enough might to be able to help if they miss a roll so they can win the roll. Or if there's an awesome opportunity for a hook combat, or if another big hero charges them, I always want them to have a point of might to be able to protect themselves. So long story short, I think I always try to think, how can I spend might? with the people that don't need it. Okay. Matt, what do you think? Um, well, kind of batting clean up, so my thoughts won't be as original. But I think in general, how you manage your resources, and the Green Dragon always makes a pretty good point on this, and they kind of make a joke about it, but re- managing resources is the biggest fundamental of the game so the number one thing is how is your opponent doing it um you have to always gauge up against their how how they're either conserving or not conserving their resources of which might is probably the biggest one because if you get to the end of the game and you do not have enough might to call heroic moves and your opponent does then they can dominate the end so the worst case scenario is the last two turns of the game not being able to do anything about a bad priority roll um, or your opponent calling heroic moves. That's worst case scenario. Second case scenario is, does your army need to move first? So if you're running Rohan, they have to move first. So you have to have a lot of might. You have to ensure you're conserving it throughout the game or else regenerating it with Rohan's special rules. And then the other thing is kind of the no-brainer, in my opinion, is you pay a lot of points for might. So if you... Do such a good job conserving it that if the end of the game you're sitting with four points of might, you're doing something wrong. So you have to kind of gauge if it's a two and a half hour round competitive event, how long is each turn going and how many points of might are you using per turn? If you think through like some quick mental calculations that, yeah, 
I'm using one point per turn, and I've got seven points of might left and only two turns left, we'll start blitzing through it. Use it. Because to get through the end of the game and have that might unspent, you're wasting resources. And I mean, I'm not sure. I've never done the math for how much might truly costs, but in battle companies or on a ring rape, it's five points for one point of might. So it's pretty expensive. If you get to the end of the game and you're sitting on four left, uh, it's, that's a waste. So I think conserving it, matching your opponent, ensuring you've got some, but ensuring that you're using it all by the end of the game is, is the general strategy. And gauging spend per turn as opposed to your opponent is probably the biggest key. Yeah, okay. that's a good call out because if you're if your opponent's conserving or if your opponent's blitzing, that could totally change the dynamic of <laughs> you might lose all your heroes before you get a chance to spend them. Absolutely. And w one thing that Marcus, you taught me that I never really thought about is certain armies don't care about heroic moves. So you quit like worrying about priority. Um, if I'm playing all foot dwarves, I might burn up my might in the first half of the game to kill or to break an opponent, not really caring if I lose my last three roll-offs for the last final three turns. Yeah, that's so a good point. You build your list and it kind of depends on who you're playing, you know, what kind of style you're running. And then obviously what scenario. In some mm -hmm. No, I, I would say Myers, it depends on like one of those three. It depends on, uh, two of your two of your three what army you're playing and what style you want to play because the scenario is always going to be moving the scenario is always going to be changing your opponent and their opponent's army is always going to be changing what army are you playing what are the strengths and weaknesses and what what style do you enjoy playing do you enjoy blitzing do you enjoy a uh, passive aggressive army so really lean into that and maybe my my take would be don't care so much about what you're facing at first. Okay. I don't know if that sounds super controversial, but that's just that's how I think about it. It does. No, it just uh, it, it's food for thought because obviously um, everybody's going to have a different style for it. But that's always one thing I'm worried about running out of might. But then, like you said, if you end the game and you have extra four or five points of might, like obviously you didn't do it too well. So um, I guess playing more games and everything, that's that's where you'll get the experience of, okay, this is when I use. And honestly, and also what I said, the post-game analysis, that's really what I found was helpful too because then you can also get your what your opponent thought. You know, either Matt, Mr. Mitchell has been like, man, I really thought you were going to do this or, you know, you did this well, so. That's that's the part where I really get the most feedback too. We're gonna have to add that to a segment, maybe back to like our our disturber the P segment, talking about how you guys do post game um, or bad reps afterwards. Because I agree with you, Myers. That's like the coolest part. Um, hearing a summary of from your from a different person's eyes. Yeah, because then it's like you know even. Um, referring to that game we played last night as well we had three different strategies just from you know how mitchell was playing in and i thought he was going to do something i thought he had this plan worked out and then finding out at the end he had a completely different strategy plan compared to what he thought he was going to do and it's just 
you know, maybe he plays the same way or maybe he changes it up. Like, I think it's just taking the pros and cons of what everybody else would do and then personalizing your own play style. Well, guys, that's all of our segments. So I think we're, we're done for episode one. Um, any closing remarks? The books. I know I we finally, we finally did it. Matt, you're right. We've been talking about this for like at least six months trying to do a podcast or trying to do a YouTube channel with bad reps. And I'm just super happy. We finally sat down and, and recorded something. So I'm super excited for what's to come. I know we're going to do this many more times, even if it's just for our own benefit, because it's, it's been a blast just thinking about and planning what we're going to talk about. So, um, yeah. All right. Well guys, thanks. Pretty big accomplishment getting the first one out. So, uh, Hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I did. And uh, look forward oh, yeah. to many, many happy returns. <laughs>